Good morning and welcome to the original Loretta Brown Show radio to open the heart, heal the soul and awaken the consciousness. I think we need to get up and dance, dance with Shraddha. Let's just get it going and have a wonderful day, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, anyway, yeah, good morning out there. <laughs> I don't know what day it is. I think it's April 22nd. And uh, oh, it's a Thursday because that's usually when your show is. So oh, thank you. We, we've got to put you. that into place. You're helping me. Out All right, here. That's yeah. what I'm here for. <laughs> I feel like I got lifted out of my body because I was already talking to my guest before the show and I get high off of her. I'm just saying. So you'll get to uh, enjoy all of that. Yeah, I see Benny looking at me like, what are you talking no, about? No, no, it's because we ha- <laughs> you're, you're going from a spiritual high, as in a couple of days ago, we had a different type of high on 420. So Actually, we won't go there. Unless you're into that, that's totally fine. Well, it's okay. Yeah, I, I totally know. get what you're uh, saying. Okay. There are different types of highs. Yes. We've got to make sure that we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, I'm the owner of Reiki Oasis, located right here in the greater Seattle area for the last 26 years, 27 years. I never quite know exactly how long it's been. And hang on just a second. Who's texting you? Thing. Yeah, my somebody's trying to ping me on my phone, and I forgot to turn it off. My sincere apologies. Is it Jenny? To, it could be. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> See, I told you. That's my sweet Jenny. Oh, tell my, her hi. My, my aloha, my daughter. Yeah. Always say aloha to Jenny. Yeah. So um, anyway, and I think I felt the breeze of Hawaii just waved across my face. And I don't know, we could do the show from there, Benny. I would be more than happy to jump in and join you on that trip. No questions. <laughs> you know, I will be on that first plane with you. I'm bringing Dina with us too. Yeah, oh, please, oh, yeah. please. We can have a wonderful time. Yeah, absolutely, a wonderful time. Wow, that really settled into my whole structure. I I might have to put that together. Everybody can just keep watching and see what happens. You know, I do take people on spiritual trips, and so maybe that's the next one. We could sure use that after this year, couldn't we? Just a little freshening up and brightening up, and and you know, huh. You know, singing the high tones. It's been beautiful in Seattle. Looks like we're going to have some rain. Good time to catch our breath. And like I say, I'm the owner of Reiki Oasis, and I do some. I have some offerings for people every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. I have a meditation. It's really easy to join. We do it via Zoom. And if you can't be there at 11, if you sign up, I'll just send you a recording of the meditation. And the idea is just to help center yourself, help help you uh, reconnect after a possibly busy week or, you know, get yourself into a higher state, right? Going higher. Yeah, like that. Um, I also have a monthly class for women, Temple of the Divine Feminine, and we are meeting this coming Saturday, April 24th. You could sign up for that and everything else at schedule.reikioasis.com. And a big word of gratitude to my supporters. I am a listener-supported show. And you can go to patreon.com slash the Loretta Brown Show if you want to be part of that. I want to do a quick astrology check-in just for the weather of the planets. And uh, then I want to bring my guest on. We have so much to talk about. 
we entered Taurus season, so we left fiery Aries, which, <laughs> yes, and uh, we had five planets in Aries at one point uh, when we had the new moon last week, and then uh, the day after that, uh, uh, Venus moved into Taurus, and I, it was weird, it was like I felt it instantly, like all of a sudden I went, something shifted, and Venus loves Taurus, Taurus loves Venus, they actually get along really well, uh, but it might uh, begin to affect things of the heart, which can be a good thing, right? Taurus is a stable sign, and it's it's going to help us slow down just a little bit, catch our breath, and attend to those um, those things that we have going on. Like maybe we can actually get some stuff done. That might be really, really nice. Taurus also has a tendency to focus on our personal health, our personal spaces. There's a lot of people decluttering, sp uh, spring cleaning or whatever you wanna call it in April, right? And then also today is uh, Earth Day. So whether you thought of it or not, Earth is a planet. The planets affect us and we affect them. Wow, who knew? It's sort of like how we are in life when we run around and people affect us and we affect them. So it's a great day to honor our home planet. Go out and put your feet on the earth and love her, send her some love and send all of creation love. Um, I do believe that the divine lives in absolutely everything. So when we you know, appreciate the beauty of a flower, we're appreciating the beauty of the divine. So that's kind of how I look at it. We also have Venus conjunct Uranus, and Uranus is a planet to watch. It's a planet of, of change. Um, and we've got this strange energy that's gonna be happening with us until 2026. And we're gonna feel a strong push-pull effect between Uranus, the planet of change, growth, and awakening, and Taurus, which is about consistency, security, and stability. So change, growth, and awakening versus consistency, security, and stability is a push-pull. And it means that it might be hard for you to accept some of the changes that are coming, but they are coming. So I don't know. I, I am a person who I'm kind of, I kind of hang on to things a little bit too long. So this will be a time for us to all be a little bit challenged, like, okay, what's really working for you? What's not working? Let's take a look at that at, at all levels. And, and this is gonna be deep work also. Friday, April 23rd, we have Mercury conjunct Uranus. There's that planet again. So it's a double dose of Uranus in just a few days. Uranus and Mercury highlight self-expression and a need to communicate. So over these days, we're likely to feel the changing and sometimes erratic energies and we're going to have aha moments. And, you know, anytime we're getting an, an, uh, a strong energy to communicate, uh, I always tell people just, just exhale a little bit and really focus on your words. They're powerful. Sound is powerful. And uh, be conscious of what it is that you actually put out there. Try to make it a blessing. Eh, sounds lofty, but there it is. Uh, and then we've got a beautiful on Monday, April 26th, we've got a Scorpio super full moon, also known as a pink new moon. And this is the first super full moon of the year, and it falls in the sign of Scorpio. It's powerful. It's a potent moon, and it's an amplifier. And I'm letting everybody know it's going to be an emotional moon for all the signs. So it's got that watery, that that energy. Um 
And it's going to draw your attention to the things you've been putting off that you really need to focus on. The full moons are illuminators. And if we really step into that and we say bathe in the moon, which is a great thing to do. Um, I'm a great ceremony ritual girl. Um, but it, it will shine light on, on things that need to have the light shown on is the way that I look at that. So it's a very, very cleansing energy under this moon and a, a powerful supportive energy. So with all of that, I'd like to just bring my guest in because I'm thrilled to have her. Um, my guest is Dina Merriam and this is either the third or the fourth time you've been on my show, but mm. I, I probably say this every time, but I feel such a heart connection with you. So it, it, it's like, oh, I got tears, which is the truth, right? Dina is an author. She's an amazing storyteller. She's a practitioner of Kriya Yoga, devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda, and she's an activist, the founder and the convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, which seeks to bring spiritual resources to address critical global challenges, such as conflict, social justice, and the ecological scarring of the earth. Now, Dina writes books that may be different than anything you've ever read. And if you get in them, you're going to be sucked in and you're going to have to stay up late and read every single word. And these stories are unique memoirs that cover the journey of a soul, possibly her soul, through several lifetimes. Her, her latest book, When the Bright Moon Rises, is a unique love story that weaves Adina's story through her life that begins in Vedic India around the ninth century BCE with the seeding of a love that cannot be fulfilled between two people until nearly 10,000 years later during the Tang Empire in China when they are reborn as the poet Levi and his poet wife. It's a story of love, compassion, trust, truth. And it's also about karma and dharma and how we go from life to life as a soul. So I'm just thrilled to have you on the show, Dina. Welcome to the show. Oh, Loretta, it's so good to be here. I feel a deep connection with you as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, in so many ways. And I, I really mm -hmm. enjoyed your reading of what's happening with the stars because we're, we need to connect more with the planets and the stars. I mean, we are part of that world. We're so focused on our everyday life that we forget that we're part of a bigger whole. Thank you for that. I, I, I very much um, agree with that. And I also think that the past year has been kind of a bit tedious for people. And many people, uh, I say, have been looking down rather than in or up, right? Yeah. 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 So I have, um, I don't even know where to start because there's so much wonderful um, things I, I wanted to kind of clarify to people a little bit about what makes your books so unique? What are these memoirs and where do you get the direction to write them? Well, you know, it all started, I mean, it started several decades ago when I began having very vivid recollections of first my birth just previous to this, which was impacting my life at that time. This was 30 years ago. And, and I saw, and I lived through it again. I recounted so many of the um, incidents in that life and the people. Uh, and then I went back to the life before that. And it happened really 
organically, spontaneously. You know, I'm a longtime meditator, meditating since I was 20. Uh, and so I really attribute it to my practice. I mean, everybody has a different experience in meditation. Some people see lights, some people leave their body. It awakens memories. That's the way, that's the way it works for me. <laughs> it just awakens memories. And so in that first book, I went back a number of lifetimes. And then there was a pause and I thought, well, you know, I only see what's relevant actually, what's relevant for my life today. I don't see it. I mean, you can't see everything. There's too much. If we were to remember everything, we wouldn't know where to, we wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have great big, huge eggheads. <laughs> so I, I, and I think that's, that's why we don't remember because we have to stay focused on our life. But when memories do come through, and I think most people have inklings and indications. We don't pay attention to them because we're busy with the external world. But any practice of reflection can highlight certain things that came from the past that need to be dealt with. Relationships, work issues, every aspect of our life. <clears throat> Everything has a cause at an earlier time. And <clears throat> the more we, uh, more we internalize, the more we can understand these causes and the, the goal is really, if we understand how the past impacts our present, we can then better create our future because everything we're doing now is gonna be reflected in the future. We're setting into motion causes that will bring results in the future. So if we can do that more consciously, it's much better. <laughs> well, I love what you said because you know a lot of people um, ask me about karma like, you know, or curses or, you know, why is this thing happening to me? But I think that we forget that we also, what we do now is affecting the future. Like we're just a, a piece in the middle of this eternal uh, reality, right? Yeah. Um, I want you to go more into um, karma and cause and effect. Cause I think these are, I think karma is kind of misunderstood. I agree. I think it's very much misunderstood. I think we have to get out of our head this notion of punishment and of judgment. There's nobody judging us. There's nobody punishing us. It's a simple law of physics that energy put out comes back, whatever energy, there's a, there's a reaction in equal uh, proportion. So thought is, is, is energy. Uh, we forget that. We think it's only if we do something to somebody, but it's behavior patterns. Um, uh, uh, the law of karma, the law of cause and effect is the universe seeking its equilibrium. So anything that's put out must be returned in some measure. It doesn't have to be an exact duplication of the event, but in some measure there has to be a balancing. So it's a, it's a balancing principle that works at the physical level in physics and it works in the spiritual level as well because uh, they're, they're, everything is energy. So energy is seeking to rebalance itself. Karma is very complex. What I've tried to do in all my books is show how this rebalancing principle uh, plays itself out in numerous ways and that, we, and that, and that there are masters or evolved souls who can help us um, uh, with the, the karmic process so that it takes place in a way that leads to our growth. The whole purpose of everything is the awakening of, of consciousness, right? So it, it's the, the rebalancing principle of karma is not a punishment, it's, it's for um, awakening, it's for learning. 
So, you know, if you, if you overeat and get a stomach ache, you might overeat a second time, but a third or fourth time you're gonna say, oh, wait a second, there's a cause effect relationship here. I should stop overeating, I'm gonna get a stomach ache. It's the same thing, you behave in a certain way, often you don't catch it the first time around or the second time around, but after a certain point, you say, this is, is not leading to happiness. This is creating suffering in me. How do I change this behavior, a way of thinking? Yeah, I, so I got like 21 questions out of the, what you just said. Um, when, you know, because this really is at the living level of our life, like your books are so fantastic. And I, I well, we'll get more into that in a minute, but you go back across eons of time you go past of, across the the yugas right you know you yes. you've got this long historical um thread through everything right. and uh, but this idea that your karma may be coming from a long time ago right that yes. things that are happening in your life right now like what you said earlier like you were experiencing things in this life that you know may or may not have made any sense regarding the the history that you have of your current life right and, yeah and and how that all plays together so i'm not sure there's a question in there but go ahead yeah i mean i see it the more i've studied this because the, the two areas of interest for me are karma and and uh time the the um more more recently we can get into that at the end i'm interested in space uh, dimensions, but uh, which yeah. I touch upon in this book is is what we call celestial worlds. There are other dimensions uh, that that our senses cannot perceive that exist right here, right now, but our senses are not designed to perceive them. But that's let me just talk about time. Um, you know, it's interesting. I when I did my first book, I went back five hundred years, and I thought, wow, wow, how, how, that's incredible. I remember something from five hundred years ago. Uh, and then there was this brief memory of something from um, uh, a thousand years ago. When I, I started uh, getting interested in the melting of the ice, because I'm an activist and I deal a lot with climate change action, um, as I, I, it, it came to my attention that about 11,000 uh, BCE, the, the glaciers, there was a meteor that hit the earth and the glaciers began to melt. Half of America, was, of the US was covered with glaciers, Europe as well the oceans rose 400 feet. So I, I began to meditate on this phenomenon, huge migrations of, of people. Uh, but I also realized, because I'm a student of the yugas, that 11,000 BCE was the beginning of the decline of the Satya Yuga. So there's 12,000 years of a, of a half a cycle, it's a 24,000 year cycle. So I've been doing a lot of research into this whole yuga cycle. And so I thought, well, the ice is melting the earth is changing, lands are being submerged, this migrations, but it's still Satya Yuga. What was the consciousness of the people? Because Yugas deal with consciousness, not whether you live in palaces or caves. You know, or maybe the people in caves had a higher consciousness. They weren't paying much attention to the material world because they were relating to the celestial beings and other, they could see more. So, um, so, that, so as I began to spend a lot of meditation on what this Satya Yuga consciousness was like, it was the beginning of the river civilizations all over, the Sarasvati River, the Yellow River in China. Uh, there were Rishis, you know, the Vedas were being, were being mm -hmm. sung, the, the poems were coming through. 
So it was the beginning of the of the arts as we know them, really, the, the first hymns and poems. Uh, and then this memory came to me of this young girl who lived uh, uh, during some thousands of years after the, the, the don't forget, the melting of the glaciers took, period, took place over a period of time. The oceans rose over a period of time. And, I, and, and as I say, with, with a lot of my books that go far back in time, I can't say for sure whether this is my memory or another soul's memory that I'm channeling. Oh, I, yeah. I experienced it as a past life. That's how I experienced it. Yeah. But I'm not attached. It didn't matter to me whether it was my own personal memory because I stopped thinking in terms of personal memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I got to experience what that time frame was like uh, uh, in that higher <sighs> age when there was a much more alignment with Dharma and when you fell out of alignment with Dharma as this young girl does, um, she, was, she was sent away for her own growth. Not, not as a punishment, of course, she didn't see it that way. Um, but she was sent away in order to have a different experience, uh, which um, then led her to meet this man, Kapila, who plays a prominent role in her life thereafter. <laughs> I am, um, it, this is so juicy. I, I so, during these these yugas, right, which last thousands of years, right, and the one you're talking about, there's a, a decreasing of consciousness. Would that be a way to say it? Yeah. So the yugas, and I've I've, I've been doing, reading mm -hmm. a lot of books on this. My own tradition uh, uh, is, writes about this. Uh, uh, Yogananda's guru, who was a scientist and astro uh, astronomer and mathematician, recalculated the yugas, but. Um, all traditions, ancient ones, have this concept of the great year, 24,000 year cycle, where our solar system rotates around a binary. And as it moves through the zodiac, we enter fields where there's higher, where there's more intense magnoelectric energy, which affects brainwaves. And in those times, the, then there's a perception of spiritual truths are, are easier. You're more aligned with the higher consciousness. And then as we continue the cycle, there, there are periods where these fields are weaker. And so there's um, a, a materialism. We, we have a more materialistic consciousness. So where are we at right now? So according to the calculations that I've seen, we've moved out of the, the densest time, the most materialistic stage, which is the Kali Yuga. And we're at the beginning of the Dwapara Yuga, which is the electrical age in which um, man comes to understand finer properties, the electrical properties, and also uh, focuses on conquering, um, conquering space. Space oh. becomes a big issue. And that lasts 24,000 years, 2,400 years, not that, 2,400 years. And then the next yuga, Treta Yuga, is when man understands a magnetic energy and conquers time, overcomes the limitations of time. Well, that sounds that sounds exciting. Um, I'm wondering to myself, you know, this the the pandemic and the challenges that we've all gone through, and I'm thinking about all of us as souls who have come in and gone out. Um, and I'm not even quite sure how to ask this question, but we are in a time of such great change. Those souls of us that are here on planet Earth at this time, oh, 
man, I don't even know you can give a single answer to this, but this is all connected to our past lives also as to why we're here right now. Now, there could be personal things such as, okay, I'm working on love, I'm working on my spirituality, I'm working on, you know, the getting out of the denseness of materialism or whatever it is. But there's also this collective concept. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. We work both at the individual and the collective. And if you look at, if you can see it all, you see your personal karma, it's like this intricate, magnificent mandala. I mean, it's beautiful to see how nothing is lost. People you loved come back again. Relationships that you haven't resolved, you get another chance to work them out. So there are innumerable, the universe gives you innumerable chances to resolve all the issues, to, to achieve your desires. You get to be, you get to be a queen, you get to be a, a peasant, you get to be everything. So you get to experience the whole thing. And to me, it's the beauty of the universe that, that we, we get all these opportunities. But I wanna say something about the present moment because a lot of people see collapse. Yes. And there's a whole group of people talking about collapsology. It's actually a birth. And in a birth, yeah. something dies, right? Um, and we are seeing that the institutions that have been created with a lower consciousness, with a Kali Yuga consciousness, are no longer suitable to our time. And so they're, they're, having, they're weakening and they're, it feels like the ground is unsteady and things are collapsing. But there is something else emerging, uh, which at the same time, and I think it behooves us all to focus our energy on what's emerging rather than what's, what's malfunctioning. Thank you so much for that. Um, that apparently has been the message that I kind of radio out there for, for several years now is like, focus on what you want, not what you don't want. Focus on creation, right? Because death is always there. And I think we're afraid of the word death, right? Uh, and instead of realizing there, there really is no death, like your books really kind of bring that out. There's a death of the body, perhaps, right? But you know, cycling around, yeah. After writing my first book, it changed my whole relationship with death because I saw, I saw that it's just a matter of shifting from one dimension into another, and that that dimension uh, is far more beautiful and uh, uh, liberating, actually, a lot more freedom. Uh, and there are beings there that are beautiful and that you have deep relationships with. Um, and so I've just finished another book, <laughs> which is on uh, the wife of Krishna, Rukmini, during that time, which was similar to our time, it was the declining cycle, the ending of Dwaparaya as Kali Yuga is approaching. So it's kind of like the opposite of what we're in now. Yeah. It was a decline, we're in an ascent. Um, and, um, and I go through three lifetimes in that. <clears throat> and it bring, in writing it, it brought me much closer to, to the other dimensions. And so, you know, time has collapsed to me. What takes place over 10,000 years is like the blink of an eye, actually, because you can go back into that time period and it feels like it was yesterday. And when you when you meet the people from that time period, the love that's there, love survives. That love is just as strong as it ever was. It's the same thing with the dimensions. You know, you can come in and out of those dimensions. And I mean, the whole process of awakening is expanding, moving beyond the limitations of time and space 
that are constructs of the mind so that we can function in a particular way in a particular set of circumstances. Yeah, but yeah. We have to break through those limitations. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and take a station break. And this is Loretta Brown, my guest today, Dina Miriam, who is just an amazing woman. Uh, I want to show, I don't actually have your book here, but I have a picture of the cover. Yeah. When the Bright Moon Rises, right? And uh, the Awakening of Ancient Memories, which are easily accessed, apparently, in the moment. So we're going to take a station break, but we'll be right back. Energy is powerful. It's all around us, mysterious, full of potential. Directing positive healing energy to raise your vibrational rate through Reiki can change your life. Reiki master Loretta Brown has relieved stress, sadness, anger, and even helped clients lose weight, stop smoking, and end sleep disorders. Worldwide, people have sought out Reiki Oasis. If you want help with your dis-ease, visit ReikiOasis.com. Harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Noah with your health tip of the day from the African American Wellness Project. Asthma affects 25 million people nationwide, and every day 10 people die with it with African-American women and children being most at risk. Early warning signs include coughing, especially at night, or with exercise and wheezing. Almost all asthma can be effectively managed with a good action plan. So talk with your doctor today, and for more information, visit aawellnessproject.org. Time is funny. Sometimes it seems fast, another time slow. When it comes to time slots remaining on Alternative Talk 1150, time is running out. In fact, there are just a few primetime slots available. So if you want to host your own radio program, the time to call 425-653-1150 is right now. Nope, no time for excuses. Dial 425-653-1150 to find out how affordable it can be to host a radio show. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back. Thank you, Betty. Always the best music. Welcome back to the original Loretta Brown show with my guest, Dina Miriam, author, amazing woman. And we're talking about her newest book, When the Bright Moon Rises. So can you tell us a little bit about the storyline of this book? It's a love story. All my books are love stories because love is the foundation of the universe. It's what keeps it all going. And creation emerged out of this out of this love, so it begins in uh, Vedic India uh, when the Vedas were coming through, uh, uh, where there are many rishis around, um, with this young woman coming out of the forest, seeing the Vedic society around the Sarasvati River, she falls in love with the Brahmachari, um, a young man who, who she hears him reciting the Vedas by the river, reciting the hymns. They they weren't compiled as the Vedas; these are hymns that the rishis writing and she falls in love with him but he's taken a vow of celibacy for 10 years and she is uh warned many times not to interfere with this but she cannot help herself so she goes into hermitage with a woman teacher and the woman teacher tries to help her um, but she's madly in love with this guy eventually she's banished and um series of things happen to her after she's banished but she's so uh, upset and angry and blames him for the banishment that she vows not to see him again for 10,000 years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and well at, that time, at that time, words carried weight. Uh, 
mantras created things, curses carried an effect. And when you took a sacred vow by the river with the goddess as you witness, that with the intention, it, it created it created an effect. It's sending energy out into the universe that then finds its fulfillment. Whatever you put out comes back to you. Right? You know, I I I practice the sankalpa. You know, the promise. So that's what was sankalpa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going. That was a. Hmm. <laughs> she made a sankalpa. So yeah. uh, the millennia pass, and she and she many many things happen to her. And she's um, now in Tang, China, eighth century. And um, in the course of her lives between those two times, she, she really falls in love with poetry and she becomes a, a poet, unknown poet, a minor poet, uh, a very quiet person, also becomes a Taoist, practicing Taoist. And she meets this um, poet, Li Bai, who's actually one of the most famous Chinese poets. <laughs> And um, they fall in love, and they get, and they f find their, they find fulfillment. And he was that, that brahmachari who she couldn't oh. be with in the past. And um, but he's a wandering poet. He comes and he goes. He comes to her, and then he travels because that's he's a he's like a wandering uh, monk. This is difficult for her. She feels rejected again. The old feelings come up of being rejected. She was banished back then. And here he keeps leaving her. She has to resolve those issues. She has a, a, a Taoist teacher who teaches her how to resolve those issues. So she's not repeating patterns. And this is, this is an important part of resolving karma. We have these yeah. mental patterns. It's like grooves in our brain that we carry from one life to another. So if you have a lack of confidence, this is not the first time you're experiencing that. You've had that pattern before. And if you don't break it now, you have to break it in the future. So if you look at your, the things that you want to change about yourself, these are patterns you brought with you and the time to work on them is now. Otherwise you'll just have to face them in the future. And so she does a lot of the in, inner work. And in the meantime, um, while she's at the hermitage, as her husband's traveling around, she says, well, I'm not going to sit here and wait for him to come home. She goes to be with a Taoist teacher who sends her into the cave where she remembers her past lives mm -hmm. and sees the patterns that she has to change. Beautiful. I got goosebumps while you're talking. Um, I just highly recommend everybody just get it now when the bright moon rises by Dina Miriam and 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 get all the all all the uh, delicious parts around it. Um, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, story, but and then also because it's I think it's real, right? And it connects uh, weaves things through. Um, was this your first um, I mean, in your books, you you uh, spent a lot of time with the with the Vedic information and the Indian things. Was this your first foray into a life in China? Absolutely, and it shocked okay. me <laughs> because <laughs> I, I've not had a personal connection with China, and um, out of the blue, suddenly, and in and in the book she recounts two. So there are three lives in China that are talked about. Uh, one around 200 uh, CE or 150 CE, then went around 600, and then this life in a, as as this poet Shu named Shu, in in the eighth uh, century. Um, what I discovered was the beauty. I didn't know anything about Taoism. In the writing of this right. book, I became a Taoist. It awakened in me the Taoist self that I had been, and so I found myself immersed in Taoist culture, seeing the connection 
between, between what I had gained in the Vedic time and the Taoists. So I dedicate the book to the, to the Vedic rishis and to the Taoist hermits and to the people of China and India, because you know, it's interesting this came to me now. China and India are the future, they're in conflict. There's this political tension. And yet if the sages could come together, if the yogis and the Taoist hermits came together, they would be in bliss. Same you know, thing, spoken a different language. That it's fascinating to me. I, I was mentioning to you before the show that um, a, a, in the fall a year ago, right, I, I took a pilgrimage to Mount Kailash and went through China, went through Beijing and went to the Forbidden City. And I, I really am like you, I've not had a whole lot of connection with any of that. And I had spontaneous past life memory. Like I walked into the Forbidden City and was just pow. I mean, it, it was just playing out in front of my eyes, right? And um, same Most thing. Most of us yeah. who have had, a, I mean, right now I finished my Rukmini book. I'm beginning to get a download on the life in Tibet in the 13th century, which will be my next book. Most of us who have a Tibetan history have a history with China. Yeah. There is deep uh, past life exchange between China, India, and Tibet. And I'm hoping to, if somehow, if that energy can be awakened, maybe it could lead to a healing of the whole region. Yeah. I mean, it may not be immediate. It may be done. The more of us, and this is another thing, the more of us who experience awakening of past memories, that affects the collective because it's like the hundredth monkey. If a hundredth monkey gains a skill, the whole species gains the skill. So the more of us tap into our old memories, the more, the easier it is for other people to tap into their memories. Yes. Oh, thank you for that. Because I also had the same thing happen in Tibet where we're going places and I was having this like, like the whole trip was about a remembering for me. And it, it kind of blew me out of the water. Um, what, you know, and I think you've already touched on this, but what, what do you really want people to know about China? What will really help us? And I think you already said it, China and India, and, and you know, there's, there's a connection here in this spirituality. Well, now I'm doing a lot of uh, inner work on, on ancient Tibet, on medieval Tibet, actually, really trying to get into that period uh, as my memories are awakening. But I tap in now. I mean, so after I finished the book, my immediate impulse was to want to go to China, to the Taoist to the mountains. There are sacred mountains. You know, I've yeah. only focused on the Himalayas, but there are sacred mountains in China, which have housed these hermits for years. And there was at that time such an integration between the Taoists and the Buddhists. Um, and and there's, there's a, I also work with young ecologists in China who one of them has translated all my books, even the Sita book into Chinese. Oh, wow. She's now translating When the Bright Moon Rises. And so there's an awakening spiritual energy going on in China. We have to segment, segment things as we do here into the political, whatever goes on at the political level and then what's going on spiritually. I mean, I do believe that what's driving the change in the US is the spiritual energy that's coalescing. Yeah. And China is at an earlier stage. It's not yet uh, 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 as extensive and a lot of it is still underground, hidden. But there is a spiritual energy awakening in China. And the more of us who can tap into that, the more we can help the situation. You know, my whole NGO is about peace building, peace building with the earth and with others. But the way to do it is, is, is not the conventional way. It's tapping into our shared memories for the awakening of consciousness. It's yeah. all about the awakening of consciousness. So we, we have to turn our focus to the spiritual movement 
that is underground that's coming up in China. Um, I, I, I love what you're saying. And it also alludes back to, ties back into something you said earlier in the show. And I, I sometimes I pick things up when people say it. You're talking about writing your books and about how you're studying history. And then you're wondering about what was the consciousness of people during that time. And I think we're doing the same thing now where we have this background of, of this is okay. This is the background or the stage that the souls have entered in on, but it is about that consciousness. Yeah. It's kind of the driving force behind the change. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there are awakened people in every era and every era. And there, there are ignorant people and people at a, at a, at a different <laughs> stage in evolution in every era. But the yugas deal with the general collective and with the, um, um, I mean, for example, there were no wars during the Satya Yuga. There were no armies. There were not advanced weapons. Not until the end of the Dwapara Yuga or the second, the, uh, the second half of it did armies and weapons come about because there wasn't this domination consciousness of needing to expand and control. There was no slavery. Wow. Um, and so when you, we have to, I mean, historians <clears throat> look at the tools and say, this was a primitive society. They don't look at consciousness. They don't look at behavior where people torturing each other and killing each other and capturing each other. No, <laughs> they may have not been building massive palaces because they were living much more in harmony with the, with the uh, natural world. And had everything they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're talking, my heart is like expanding. Like, yes, let's do that, right? <laughs> let's do that. More of that. Um, could you talk about um, the power of mantra and sound, and of course, the the hymns, the rishis? And I was thinking while you were talking that, you know, I do Vedic chanting, and I, I love it. Right? I've chanted with a group for like 22 years. And we're a small group of, you know, people that are not East Indian trying yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You understand, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. But I was thinking when you were talking about how the times that the the rishis brought this information in, I'm always fascinated by that. Like, how did they do that? And you know, what what was really going on? Like, you know with with surya or the 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 sun or the the moon or the stars you know the way that they thought about that and the so, power of sound mm -hmm. so if you look at earth when they uh during the glacial period um most of the water was frozen so there was not a lot of rain or forests uh food was 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 scant and there was a small human population the water begins to melt the rivers come rain comes forests flourish so the way I understand it, the Rishis at that time helped all of that happen. We're guiding, we're, we're helping the forests. Uh, they were creating it. So we know about the creative energy. There's a creative energy in the universe. There is creation, things come about. How do these things come about? I mean, even in the uh, Western tradition, Abrahamic tradition, at the beginning, there was the word. What is the word? Word is vibration. Out of vibration, out of unmanifest comes manifest. The rishis knew this uh, spiritual law, how to create. And so the things that were created, that, and in the forest, there was no need for agriculture at that time. The time I write about was the beginning of agriculture, but the forests were plentiful. The rishis were part, and, and of course the rishis were not, they were, they were sages in different parts of the world 
all doing the same thing in those parts, helping to create the new formation as the yugas change, the, the, the earth changes. And so, um, so the forests and the rivers and then the river societies came in. So mantra uh, uh, at that time was, was how things came, how, how humans were able to manage their environment, so to speak. Um, th through mantra. Now, with the with the declining times, we we not all of us, but generally lost the ability to attune ourselves with those higher vibrations and to be able to have the mental power. Now, think about it. The, there was no writing at the time because there was no need for writing. Everything was held through the mental power. And Indra, who was the main god they worshipped, was the mental energy. Was the higher mental energy, mm -hmm. not a god sitting up in a cloud waiting to punish you. It was the higher mental energy they were invoking. So all of the, the Vedas were, were memorized. Everything was, everything was held in memory. And it was only when this loss began, people had to write it down because they, they didn't have that mental capacity anymore. Um, and and uh, I mean, I'm glad mantra is coming back now, but for so long, except in, 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 in among you know, sacred societies and everything, uh, it was lost and misused. Um, during the Mahabharata War, which I write about in my the book I'm working on, um, it, there were mantra weapons, and Krishna withdrew those mantra weapons. That's what was his presence on the battlefield, not just to advise Arjuna, give Arjuna the wisdom. It was to contain those mantra weapons and withdraw them as humanity was going into the Kali Yuga. Wow, I I am being with that and i think that's a great uh, it's a great message to people it's a great imagery you know we sometimes are like uh, you know throwing darts or arrows with our mouth right mantra weapons wow yeah as well as mantra protection mantra blessing you know, mantra devotion right it depends on where the human mind is you know mm -hmm. as the human mind got greedy and uh, became more egotistical because in the in the time I write about it, it was the less developed ego. There was a less developed sense of separation. We were more part of the whole, not wanting things for ourselves, just living in harmony with it all. But as the ego strengthened and the sense of self strengthened, people wanted more. Greed set in. And then you can use these powerful tools for selfish reasons. Yeah, greed sets in. I'm also thinking about, like you said, we're coming out of the densest, most materialistic, the Kali Yuga and entering into a different time, right? Entering into, I, I think you said uh, space, right? Space. space. And uh, I find it interesting that many of my clients are already verbalizing, oh, I just need to declutter. I need more space, right? Exactly. Uh -huh. Internal yeah. and external space, yeah. So um, I wanna ask you, um, how, how, and by the way, I wanna put a plug in for your other books also, I wanna just, my journey through time, right? Um, the untold story of Sita. And, and by the way, I, I don't know if uh, this new book, When the Bright Moon Rises, seems to flow from this book into the next book. Does your newest book also, like it's a flow? Absolutely. Okay. Things that are unresolved in that book get resolved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I highly recommend, I mean, you can jump in and read any of the books at any time, but you know, like I, I already have a space on my shelf for the Dina Miriam books. I'm just letting you know, <laughs> and they're and they're well loved and tabbed. So, um, and I feel like uh, when I'm reading them, I'm getting uh, lessons, 
not just history lessons like wow but consciousness lessons bringing it alive is what i love about what you've done right it's not just sterile teachings these are people you know these were happenings mm -hmm. it's a teaching for me i mean each book yeah. i write i feel like I, i'm i'm getting a teaching uh, because I'm able to see when you're in a life, you can't see it objectively. And this is what happens to us when we leave the body, we begin to look back at our life. And when you think about it, what, what, do, you what do you take from a life? You live 80 plus years, 85 years. You take highlights. There are certain things that you're carrying with you. Uh, um, um, the pains and the moments of the deep relationships and love relationships. So I've been able to step back and look at the past and say, um, I see now. I see now the whole process, the journey of a soul, and we all have it. I mean, we all have, you know, the tears and the and the and the deep love and the joy, all of it. Um, but I felt, just felt like sharing my story maybe could help others tap into their memories or at least acknowledge that they've had the same journey. We talked a little bit during the break about, you know, because I could feel that when you write these, you immerse yourself in that time and in those lives. Is it hard to let that go? Very hard? hard. Yeah. Very hard. And and with this book, with the Bright Moon Rises, as well as the book that I'm writing called Rukmini and the Turning of Time, I I, I can't I can't I, my my editor keeps saying when when can I look at it and I just months go by I can't let it go <laughs> I'm I'm still living in that time period I I can't move on and then finally I have to force myself to move on and I, it's like I don't want to leave I mean for for a long time in that in the bright moon rises, I had this relationship with this being, Levi. And then I had a dream of him after it was done and I knew it was time to let go. Um, and, and now in my current book, I'm going through the same kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it, it must be part of your own healing, right? To, to write definitely. these books and share them. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, we all, we're all looking to graduate, right? Right. And so we, we part of the process of graduating is putting to rest everything that came earlier so that we can move on to the higher to the higher work. <laughs> well, like you were talking about, like the, the Taoist um, that was helping, you know, your your yourself in that book with uh, Levi, you know, the, the uh, you know, deal with the memories and to put to rest whatever it is that needed to be put to rest. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're always, we are, I mean, we all have guides, whether they're embodied or not, we all have guides and we can connect with them. I mean, many of us have guides right here, uh, often a number of them, uh, people who help us take the next step along the way. Um, and, you know, for me, I just have an enormous sense of gratitude for past and present guides, for those who've helped me along selflessly, provided assistance. And I think living in that space of gratitude is is as um has been enormously helpful for me yeah you also um in in your newest book and maybe in the other books too uh the ancient vedic clans were ruled by women right and um there's obviously a message in here for women and also i'm very much feeling and hearing your your activism yeah so many of my previous births have been about finding my place my voice and my confidence as a woman uh, in the poet, you know, she's an unknown poet. He's a very successful poet, you know, has the tension of the society. And she experienced that same thing of, of feeling unqualified. Uh, and this is a theme that's been with me for a long time. 
um, even though I came from a clan where my mother was the clan leader and it was passed down for women, uh, I did not feel qualified to, to, to assume that position. And um, I've had to work in this life and, and I, I see that as the cause behind the founding of the Global Peace Initiative of Women. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, let me just ask this, how has writing these books changed your life? It's transformed me and every book transforms me a little more. It's, it's, it's made me change my whole concept of time and space and realize that we can be present in many time periods and are present in time periods and in, in spatial dimensions. And also it's changed my whole relationship with death, which is just a step into another world. Uh, uh, and yet we have this instinctive fear which is built into the DNA so that we would work to preserve our body. So it's an in instinct that's there. And yet we can overcome it by expanding our consciousness into these other realms. And it's also made me realize the predominance of love as, as, a, as, a, as a, um, a, a preserving force in the universe. Uh, love is at the essence of everything. The more we can tune into that energy, the more we can be of service it's also changed my perspective of not, not being here to fulfill my desires, but to be of service. I mean, what else is there left to do? When you see you kind of experienced it all, <laughs> what's left to want? <laughs> the good, the bad, and the 10,000 years. High and the low, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I've done that, and I've done that, and I've done that too, so <laughs> don't need oh. to repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> um, We've got like a minute. And so tell people where to find you, where to find your beautiful uh, books and one last word. Well, you can find me, all my books on Amazon. If you just uh, type in books by Dina Miriam, um, then all the books will come up. Um, I also have a, a Facebook page, which is Dina Miriam public page where I do book readings. Uh, and I'll be doing a book reading next month from the Bright Moon Rises. And then my organization, the Global Peace Initiative Women, is on Facebook, and our website is uh, gpiw.org, gpiw.org. And my last word is, um, is, is to tune into the love energy, because we are in a moment now where we have to focus on the creation of, 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 of using of the gathering the positive energy that we're all generating for the creation of new ways of living on the earth. Uh, where, we're, where we're respectful and loving and caring toward the earth and all the ecosystems and toward each other. So this energy is needed and we have to do it as a collective around the world with the spiritual communities in India, in China, in Africa, everywhere, uh, connecting energetically with them so that we can bring about change, if not in our lifetime, then in our, the lifetimes of our children. 